This is Rana Kinsey, Executive Vice President of People and Culture at Emerald and Advertising Week. And on today's podcast, we're talking about mental health in the workplace. Joining the session is my colleague, Natasha Bowman. Natasha is a champion for workplace equity. She has been named a top 30 global guru in management, a top 200 voice in leadership, and a LinkedIn top voice for mental health. She's a two-time author, and today is actually the release of her second book, Crazy AF, How to Go from Being Burnt Out, Unmotivated, and Unhappy to Reclaiming Your Mental Health at Work. She's a TEDx speaker and president of New York City-based leadership development firm, Performance Renew. Natasha and I have worked together in the past six years, and she has been my trusted advisor on many work-related topics. Hi, Natasha. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. Hi, Duran. Thank you so much for having me here with you today. Before we start, I'd love for you to take us through your career journey, if you don't mind. How did you go from being an attorney to an HR executive to a mental health advocate? Yes, and a journey it has been. (laughs) So, yes, I started out my career as a labor and employment law attorney. But then I got tired of being on the dark side of misconduct in the workplace. (laughs) No offense to any attorneys listening to us. Yes, yes, it's very dark. So I wanted to be more proactive and intentional about creating cultures of engagement and positivity and all of those things. So I went over to the head of HR side um, and was the head of HR for a couple of Fortune 500 companies, healthcare organizations, um, before founding my firm, Performance Renew. And we've been doing leadership development, DEI, um, I've written books taught at colleges and universities, and now I have shifted to mental health advocacy, cultivating cultures of mental wellness in the workplace. And that has a personal meaning for you. Can you share a little bit about what that is? It does. The shift was not intentional, I'll be honest. Um, So um, as I stated before, I was, I guess you can say, checking off all of my professional goals, writing books and teaching and, you know, had this consulting firm and had been named that top 30 global guru in management in February of 2020 and had a plane ticket for me and my family to go to Indonesia to get that award. But guess what happened in March of 2020? (laughs) We all know what happened. Yes, all of that was put on pause. And I found myself without chasing any sort of professional success. And without that, without chasing that professional success, I didn't know who I was. My brain had not been trained to abstain from doing anything. Because you had to pause. That's right. I had to pause. I've never done that before. And so my mind went to places it had never gone to before. I would later learn that I entered what would be a bipolar manic episode. And uh, several months later, uh, a bipolar depressive episode that led to a suicide attempt in January of 2021, an inpatient hospitalization in a mental health facility. And it was while being hospitalized that I learned that I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And... um, of course, you know, getting that type of diagnosis based upon what we have seen in the media and, you know, every movies and everything else, I really sat in this place of blame, shame, and pain about my diagnosis and really thought that my professional career was over, done. And you talk about searching for identity. Um, and I stayed in that place for several months of what's next for me. And I talked to my mental health provider about my fears of having this diagnosis. And he brought to my attention, Natasha, 
you've had bipolar disorder for about 20 years, probably. And you just never knew it. Just never knew it. In fact, it has fueled your professional success. So who you were before this diagnosis is who you continue to be. Having a name on it doesn't change anything for you. And it was that realization that helped me to start to destigmatize myself um, and to think about everybody else that probably was going through the same thing. And as we know, during the COVID pandemic, there is a 25% increase of people diagnosed with a mental health condition. and they. But yet everyone felt very alone in that. So I decided to make my diagnosis and my journey public. I went on my LinkedIn platform, um, posted a professional photo of myself and captioned it. This is the face of bipolar disorder. Um, And to my surprise, that post went viral and with nothing but positive responses and support. And that's when I knew that cultivating cultures of mental wellness was my new journey. I love that. And thank you for sharing that. I think it's important to emphasize that the biggest bias you face around your mental health was really self-inflicted. Is that fair to say? That is very fair to say. Um, Again, I had seen all these images. You just not you had not seen mental illness show up in a positive way. Right. We especially during that time frame, that was during the Free Britney campaign. And it was just so much negativity around it. And I just convinced myself that I wasn't the person that I was and I would not be capable or competent or confident anymore. And so it was so important that that first step was about awareness of my condition, realizing, yes, you still are capable, competent and confident. You can still do what you've done in the past and maybe even more. And that was so important to me at uh, being that first step. And that's what I try to help others to do right now. I love that. Up until more recently, you mentioned LinkedIn and you shared that um, diagnosis with LinkedIn, which is not really common. LinkedIn is supposed to be professional. Mm-hmm. We keep everything about our personal lives away from LinkedIn and that's changing. We're yes. using our platform to have better conversations on LinkedIn right now. Up until more recently, talking about any health issues, mental or physical, was highly discouraged in the workplace, especially as managers, as HR professionals. We were all taught to stay away from these topics. Can you tell us a little bit about why that was? Yes. From a labor attorney's perspective, and then how that's really changing now. Yeah, so we're both HR executives, right? (laughs) So we would tell our managers, I'm guilty as charged. Same. You know, do not talk about employee health with them. Mental, physical, send them straight to HR, send them straight to EAP, but don't you engage in those conversations. And when I really reflected back on that, right, we gave that advice, first of all, for legal aspects. We didn't trust them not to cross any legal boundaries, get us in trouble, we're in court, et cetera, et cetera. But we weren't applying that and neither were managers equitably, right? So let's say, for instance, um, an employee approached their manager and stated, I've been diagnosed with cancer. No manager I know would say, don't say another word. I don't want to hear about it. Go to HR, go to EAP. They would engage in that conversation in an empathetic and compassionate way. They would say, oh, what stage are you? You know, or, you know, what's your treatment plan? How can I support you? I'm they so would, sorry. I'm Show so empathy. Sorry. Right. Yeah. They would check up on you. What do you need? What does your family need? Do you mind if I share? It would be all of this, right? Engagement. 
So what really happened was they were on, we, they were only taking our advice when it really came to mental health issues. So that was the first thing I identified was that inequity in that, right? A health condition is a health condition. It doesn't matter if it's physical or or visible or invisible or not. And I think that conversation has changed because we realized through the pandemic how many people were struggling with their mental health, no matter what your title was in the conversation. And we really realized that for us to be able to reach our organizational goals and be successful, um, that mental health counts. We saw that through the great resignation that happened, you know, last year. The burnout, people were leaving. Organizations were trying to determine why are people leaving the workplace or why are they not coming back when we're, you know, trying to get them back into the office. And their main response was, I've experienced with the outbeat in the workplace what it's like to be uh, to have mental well-being. And I don't want to lose that. And I think that helped to shift for organizations. Hey, if we want to retain our employees, if we want to obtain organizational success, then we've got to address and start having conversations about mental health. And I'm so excited, although we've got a long way to go with those conversations, but I'm so excited that we're seeing organizations address it. We're starting to see more people on LinkedIn, professional platforms, talking about their mental health. Um, And I think we're moving, I know we're moving in the right direction with that. And what would you say to managers who are still reluctant to talk about this topic? Mostly probably because they're uncomfortable, they've never been taught how to speak about it. What would you say to them? Yes, absolutely. And I can understand that reluctancy if you've been in management for a while, because here we are, the experts, we've been telling you all these years, don't talk about this. And now we're saying, hey, check up on your employees' mental well-being. So I can understand the reluctancy from a legal perspective. So just to put on my labor and employment law hat for a minute there, just to clarify, you know, it's okay to ask. It's not illegal to ask an employee if they're okay. Do they need support? From without you? assumption. Without I think assumptions, that's right. A and good clarification. Right, without assumptions, make. without pathologizing, like, oh, hey, saying things like, oh, you feel, you seem depressed. Like, we don't want to use those words. But hey, I've noticed there's been a change in behavior. Are you okay? And also looking for not just the downs, people's whose behavior um, or productivity or whatever that is has gone down. But in my case, bipolar mania shows up, well, I'm on a high, you know, and I'm overproductive, you know. And so looking out for those types of signs. I also think the more that you educate yourself about mental health conditions, because another reason that we discouraged was because um, we were afraid that they were going to make decisions based on that information, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. So if an employee shares with you that they have been diagnosed with a mental health condition, then those stereotypes, assumptions, the bias, the stigma, us, the stereotypes, the bias, you start to stigmatize um, and you start to make decisions based upon that information. And, and that's one of the reasons that we discouraged it. But the more that you know about mental health conditions and the, and the more you talk about and it. the more you talk about it. Right. You realize you're still like I said, you're still capable and competent. You just may need at that moment some additional support may work may look differently for you. But people can still meet expectations. And the more we have those conversations, the better. And what would you say to leaders about normalizing the conversation about their own mental health? Because I think in order to facilitate good conversation with your employees, you as a manager or a leader or even as an individual who wants to talk about it with their colleagues, need to first 
have empathy for yourself and understand that none of us are perfect. We're all human. We're all going to have our ups and downs. So normalizing that within yourself. What would you say about normalizing that conversation? Yes, it starts there. It's, I'm so glad you brought that up because normalizing the conversation starts with the leader themselves. I think that we think, oh, if I have a certain title or position within an organization, now I don't have mental health struggles. I have to be perfect or whatever. And lately, we have seen some political leaders, right, be very transparent about their mental health struggles. So Jacinta Ardern, um, who was a former prime minister of New Zealand, you know, she was top of her game, so admired across the globe, and she resigned from her position due to burnout. And that sent a strong message to people that, hey, I can still be high performing, but I'm burned out and it's okay for me to step away. We saw John Fetterman, who's a U.S. congressman, who checked himself into a mental health facility due to depression. So it's okay, even if you're a leader, to say, I need help. I'm burned out. I need to take a mental health day, right? So the awareness about yourself helps you to connect with your team so that when they bring these struggles to you, you then can empathize with them. That resonates with you. You can engage in a meaningful conversation. Mental health does not have titles, right? No one is exempt from mental health struggles. And what does burnout look like for someone who doesn't even know how to identify it as burnout? Yeah, so I think that's a crucial question because burnout is solely a workplace phenomenon, right? It's different than stress, you know, um, where that can be related to anything. Burnout is solely related to work. So those signs of burnout is when you really become disengaged from your work, you're kind of apathetic all of a sudden, you know, so you're usually highly engaged. Think about you've ignited that match. Think about a match. It's ignited. It's fueled with your passion and fulfillment and purpose. And then you notice less and less that it's fueled by other things than that passion, fulfillment, and purpose. It's fueled by um, unreasonable expectations. It's fueled by excess workload. And then eventually, that fire is going to go out, and that's where that burnout is. And then you start to be apathetic about your work. You start to be disengaged. In fact, you start to have negative feelings about that. And when you notice that change in behavior, it's important that you reflect on, why did my behavior or my attitude towards my job change? Is it because of environmental factors? Is it because of leadership? Or is it because I'm burned out, right? I have I have too much of a workload or maybe I don't enjoy the work that I'm doing anymore. There's a lot of factors that contribute to it. Um, but just looking for that shift, right? Something that you used to be highly engaged in and passionate about and you no longer are, that's one of the primary signs of knowing that you're burned out. That's very interesting, and I think that probably is a big correlation with the great resignation and the labor shortage that we're still facing right now because a lot of people are not coming back to work. Yep. They're either doing their passion projects or yes. taking time off or going on sabbaticals. Right. I can't remember the exact number, but so many people have exited the workplace since the COVID pandemic um, and never returned. And then that shifted the economy in itself. And now we're starting to see layoffs on top of that. So those of us that, that are remain behind in workplaces, I'm doing the job of like two and three people, Absolutely. right? 
Or if I'm watching these layoffs or I'm watching people leave, what tends to happen is now I think I have this job insecurity, right? So I think I've got to go over and beyond to prove my worth within the organization because I don't want to be next. So that can burn you out. So it's important that when you see layoffs or you see people leaving, you see a high turnover rate, that's a critical point to have a conversation with your manager to say, this is what I'm seeing. I'm feeling like I need to go over and beyond. I'm doing all of this to prove my worth. Let's have a real conversation about my job security, right? And we have to be proactive because what we typically do is to wait for a crisis moment before we have conversations. Yes, And oftentimes those crisis moments are too late, right? You're already burned out or you're experiencing a mental health crisis, you know, or maybe you're even exited your organization and you're unprepared. So it's so important that we have these conversations proactively before these crisis moments. So if you are a manager or in a leadership position in the workplace, what does that conversation look like? If you've never had a conversation about anything related to mental health or anything in the in the news space or anything impacting communities, how does one start? Yes, I know, again, this is a very scary topic because in conversation, because we've been, um, you know, discouraged for having it for so long. So what I would encourage you to do is, you know, if it's a team meeting or something like that, first of all is to acknowledge the current conditions in the work climate, right? So if you're in tech and a lot of these other fields that are experiencing layoffs and things like that, acknowledge that. Acknowledge to your team. I understand and I realize that this may be impacting your mental well-being. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about how it's impacting you. Let's talk about how you're responding to it. Are you responding in a healthy way? What can I do to support you? Once you do that and you're proactive, you're not waiting to those crisis moments, you're gaining trust within your organization. It's also important to also share how it's impacting you and your mental well-being, being vulnerable and transparent to say, I'm scared too. I have a little bit of job uncertainty too. And this is what I'm doing to protect my mental health. So if you start talking about it, essentially, you're creating a safe space for others. And then after you start that conversation, be very strategic about planning future conversations. Ask your workforce, your team, well, what else do you want to talk about? What should we put on next week's agenda or next month's agenda, right? And essentially, when we embed these conversations um, organically into our meetings and et cetera, et cetera, it becomes very strategic, right? And that's when we start to see the culture shift. And that's we want. That's what we want. We want a culture shift of cultivating cultures of mental well-being, and it starts there. It starts with just creating a safe space for dialogue. More of a building block, so that exactly. by the time there is a crisis that you need to address, you've already built a relationship with your team where people are speaking their mind, and there's an open conversation and a trusted environment, and we could then talk about sticky topics. Exactly. Exactly. We keep hearing about the word psychological safety in the workplace. Um, Can you explain to our listeners what this means and why it's important? Yes. So, um, you know, psychological safety has really become a buzzword, if you will. Um, But essentially, psychological safety means different things to different people. 
But the overall definition is that you feel safe to speak up about things. You feel safe to have, you know, uncomfortable conversations, voice your opinions about certain things without fear of retaliation. That's what it all boils down to. So when we're thinking about psychological safety, we've also got to understand that it means different things to different people, right? So things that may make you feel unsafe in an environment may not affect me whatsoever and vice versa. So it's important for leaders to, again, this is a great topic for a meeting for having those conversations, is to identify and learn from their teams what does psychological safety mean to you? I had this conversation when, when I was leading a team within an organization, and I was surprised to hear from someone. And she said, I have a team member here who keeps carbon copying you on every email. Mm. And that gives me anxiety because gives I start anxiety to, just yep, hearing yep, about just it. Just hearing about you know, because I start to think, why is my boss being copied? Am I not responsive? Am I not doing a good job? There's no sense of you knowing, right? I want my autonomy. You know, you should only I be copied. I want to feel trusted. Exactly. So, um, so that was just an example. And the person that was doing it was like, oh, that's me. I'm sorry. I, really, I'm doing it to protect my own psychological safety. So my boss knows that I'm, you know, engaging in my work. So we sat down to say, okay, well, let's put some rules of engagement around email etiquette, right? When it's appropriate for me to be included and when I shouldn't be included. That right there alone, if you could see the relief on everybody's faces, right? So again, the power of conversation to understand what does psychological safety mean to you? How can I as a leader, you know, cultivate that for you as a colleague? Because even colleagues can create cultures uh, of unsafe cultures. But sometimes we don't realize we're doing that. So again, there is no overall definition. I can't give you every single variable that plays into psychological safety. It's important that you engage in the conversation and understand what that means for your team. And for these conversations that we're encouraging our leaders and our managers to start, where does HR play a role in it? Yeah, we're here for advice and guidance. I think sometimes there's a misconception about HR's roles in organizations. We are not mental health professionals. We have not been trained for a lot of things that uh, people think we've been trained for. And we should not be the ones having a direct relationship with your team members. You should be having these conversations with your team members. And I'm sure just like me, you've experienced this when a leader, right, um, doesn't want to engage in an uncomfortable conversation. They say, go see HR, right? And I'm like, why are you here? Like, if I need to talk about workplace flexibility or whatever that is, that should be coming from your manager. I'm here to advise and guide you. If you need to tell that employee, thank you for sharing that with me. Do you mind if I get back with you in a day or two? That's great. Come to me, get the advice and guidance, and then come back to that employee, right? That's what we're there for, to give you advice, to give you guidance. But eventually and organically, these conversations should start to be there very naturally for you, right? Where you feel more and more comfortable engaging with them. Absolutely. I agree with you. I think in order for a culture shift to happen in the workplace and for psychological safety to happen within departments, it has to be our managers and our leaders and our colleagues having that conversation 
with HR's guidance and help where appropriate. Outside of HR, what are some other resources that people could tap into? Absolutely. So uh, most organizations have employee assistance programs. They can be great, but make sure that you're utilizing them correctly. And that's where HR does come in, right? Because we're usually the ones that sign the contracts with EAP. We're that liaison. And what I realized after my own mental health crisis, I reflected on as an HR leader, uh-oh, there are some things that I, I just I wasn't doing. There were some gaps in the things that I could be doing. And one of those things I identified was my relationship with EAP. Many years, I just signed the contract. Okay, each employee gets eight visits, and, you know, they can call anytime. I put the number in the orientation. I was done with it. I never engaged with EAP to say, what's the utilization rate? Are people actually using you? Because a lot of times we forget about it to that crisis moment, and really they have way more resources that you need outside of that that can help you prevent crisis moments, right? And that's a resource you've already paid for and invested as a company. Exactly, but sometimes it's wasted money because it's not utilized. Are there some things I should know about? It's confidential. They can't tell me, well, Ren said so-and-so, but they sure. can say, well, there's a theme here so that I can tr- address that from a cultural issue. So we have that. We have EAP. Um, some people have apps. You know, we can have therapy on demand because sometimes with EAP, it may be 24 hours before you're connected with a therapist. You get limited amount of sessions. Sometimes we need to supplement that. There's a mental health provider shortage. So we need to supplement that with, you know, on-demand apps, you know, that we can use. Um, then there's like meditation apps like Calm, right, that we can we do. We use Headspace yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, Headspace Health, which is a great one. Um, so, again, th- those are some resources. But I think the most critical resource is that management training and awareness because once we create those psychological safe, uh, safe workplaces and spaces, then people are going need to need to use those resources less and less, right? Um, so that, 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 that critical resource is, underst- is the education and awareness around mental health. And that all starts with managers having simple conversations as part of their regular check-ins with their mm-hmm. um, colleagues and their, their direct reports. I yes. love that. You are an advisor for Mentera. Yes, Can you I tell am. us a little bit about what that is and how that could be play as a resource? Yeah, so Mentera is just such a great organization that I'm, I'm actually their global ambassador and have partnered with them um, from an organizational um, uh, standpoint. But essentially, they offer customized both in-person, online events. Um, I host monthly Care Chats, where we host leaders with organizations who had um, um, mental health and wellness initiatives. Um, we have think tanks. We just partnered together for a think tank right here in New York City. And they have SHRM, which is the Society for Human Resource Management, going back to that HR professional, uh, wellness workshops. And they have a care stack model. And that model really helps organizations to really address the whole person. So whether you are needing treatment, whether you're in healing, uh, or whether I just need additional resources as an HR professional, they package all of that up into the care stack model, which is really a great resource for any organizational leader or HR professional. 
That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. And how can people find you, Natasha? Yes, I love to be found because I love talking about this topic. So connect with me on LinkedIn. That's my main platform. I share probably daily something on mental health and workplace issues. And I just wrote my book that I'm so excited about. You can get the paperback copy now, uh, in fact. Uh, What's the name of your book? It's Crazy AF. <laughs> and Get your mind out the gutter. It's crazy and fearless. That's what the AF stands for. (laughs) How to go from being burned out, unmotivated, and unhappy to reclaiming your mental health at work. I love that. And, you know, that gives you so much more than what we talked about and shared today. It gives you a framework and tools. And then come back and let's engage on LinkedIn about this. But that's really where you can find me in that book or on LinkedIn. (laughs) Thank you so much, Natasha. Thanks for making the time and sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me.